Welcome to The Pick List, the podcast for curious food industry minds. Every week, we bring you our pick of articles from the world of food and grocery retail and explore what they tell us about how our food industry is changing in these extraordinary times. We chat about the major news from nationals and big trade titles, but we also love unearthing gems from niche publications and sharing brilliant, quirky food stories that change the way we think about the food we eat and produce. I'm Julia Glotz. And I'm Laura Ryan. It's great to have you with us. Let's start the show. Hi, Julia. It's episode 32 of The Pick List. How has your week been so far? Hello, Laura. Very good. Thank you. Um, I've been very busy um, doing a lot of training. And in fact, I've just uh, signed up two new clients for my training business on a trade media masterclass, which is one of the dedicated masterclasses I run or PR agencies that are looking to get more coverage in the trade press. So that's keeping me very busy at the moment. That sounds absolutely fantastic. I've got a busy week as well. I'm also speaking at a Women in Diplomacy uh, event for uh, embassies right around the world, actually, talking all about Meet Business Women. Uh, and as some of my connections are saying on Twitter, they're uh, wondering how much diplomacy I've got. So we will find out. Uh, and I'll uh, feed back next week, but uh, looking forward to it. We've got a fantastic guest this week, haven't we? We have indeed. We're joined by Laurie Tan, who's CEO of Little Tummy. Uh, Laurie brings such an interesting perspective uh, on the industry. She's obviously at Little Tummy now, a D2C uh, baby food business. Um, but she's got a background working for Greys and for Cadbury as well. So uh, really knows the industry very well and brought some fantastic articles for us to discuss as well. Yeah, it was great hearing some of her insights. Um, also, we should mention we're on Instagram. So please do look us up and follow us. Um, the Pick List uh, podcast, we are there uh, and uh, we're getting a growing following. So please take a look. And as ever, please do like and subscribe to The Pick List. Shall we start the show? Laurie, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. Thank you for inviting me. It's a pleasure to be here. Why don't you briefly introduce yourself and tell our listeners who you are, what you do, and how you're connected to the food industry? Okay, so I'm the CEO of Little Tummy, and um, we offer cold-pressed, fresh, and nutritious baby food. We're revolutionising the baby food category, um, which has actually seen very little innovation since the 1930s when commercial baby food first hit the market. Um, my background is in biochemical engineering and my links with the food industry began with Cadbury's, working with chocolate and confectionery with stints in Bourneville, Poland and a global role in Singapore. More recently, I've worked with Greys and now I find myself in perhaps the most exciting um, and challenging role of my career, leading Little Tammy. Fantastic. And before we jump into the articles you've chosen for us, I'd just love to get you to talk a little bit more about your business and some of the challenges um, that, that you've already alluded to as well, because it's such an exciting time for food businesses, but also such a challenging time. And you are a direct-to-consumer business, aren't you? Mm -hmm. And we're hearing so much about the online boom at the moment. We're going to talk about it um, in, in a little bit more detail later as well. But just give us a taste of how did you experience this and, and what are your plans now for 2021? Well, it's been, well, it's been an exciting adventure. I think we, um, we started out um, in 2019 um, with one manufacturer and they were bought out so we, we ended up having to move manufacturers which culminated in a, a relaunch in May 2020 so um, we, we actually missed the first panic buying of the lockdown pandemic and um, that sort of 
we still had really good sales. They were up 160% approximately. And um, we've had really good customer retention. So um, I think a healthy, healthy um, lifetime value to CAC ratio. So that's been really positive. Um, and then moving into next year, um, we, we hope to list in, in retail. Um, so DTC is great. It's really um, good for us to, to get customer insights, to understand what their pain points are, um, how to target them, um, and what, what they really want. And so we've worked really hard on improving our product, um, providing lots of educational content, which is something that we realized early on that, that they really, they didn't have much of. And we've got um, Sophie, our in-house pediatrician. So that's, um, that's been, you know, really, I think especially during, during lockdown, um, parents have needed that, that support. Um, so that's been great. And so, yeah, so next year we're intending to launch into retail, um, just, just distribute more widely, really, and I think work on brand awareness. Um, so, so we've got some, we've got some big plans, exciting plans ahead. It sounds like it. It's so interesting that you were saying that. You know, I think there are so many businesses that that have started out with a D two C model, and ultimately a lot of them then evolve into that sort of omni channel model where they do mm. end up with with a retail presence as well. So, I'd be fascinated to see what you end up doing um, on a on a retail yeah. basis. Um, now, as you know, the pick list is all about sharing interesting articles and finds about the, the food and drink industry. So I'd love to just ask you a little bit about your reading routine. How do you keep <laughs> up to date with what's happening in the industry? What sort of publications do you read on a regular basis? I love keeping up to date with current affairs, um, both so um, both general and in the food and startup industry. So I suppose my, my frustration is that um, time inevitably is short. Um, I tend to dip in and out of the main, the broadsheet papers and um, magazines such as The Week, The Spectator, and then, of course, you know, the, the food industry journals such as The Grocer, but also startup, retail and, and e-commerce um, news platforms. So modern retail, um, we're, we're fundraising as well. So a lot of investor investment pitch book, you know, that sort of thing. Um, so obviously a broad range, but I only have time for a selection of articles. So it's, it's difficult. And actually, this is where the trim and the pick list come in handy. They do a lot of the work for me. <laughs> Fantastic. Thank really you for the shout out. The, the check's in the post. <laughs> <laughs> so why don't you tell us a little bit about the first article that you've chosen for us? So my first article is um, it's from the Financial Times, and it's on shareholders holding Tesco's to account for lack of action on the obesity crisis. Um, talks about how obesity has been an ongoing issue, but has been increasingly under the spotlight because of the pandemic. So the shareholders are calling on Tesco to set targets for increasing the proportion of sales of, of healthy products. And really, I picked this article because it's a topic which is really close to my heart. I'm, I'm passionate about the need to advocate for health and nutrition. And um, it seems that investors have identified that health and nutrition is, um, as an, is a material risk for, for food retailers. So if the industry doesn't respond, then there's a danger that they will lose market share and profits will fall. Um, so, I mean, in fact, there's a stat I read elsewhere that 85% of UK shoppers are now actively trying to improve their diet when shopping. So there's definitely a demand for healthier options. Um, so later on in the article, Tesco mentions a focus on reformulation, making it easier for customers to make healthy choices and increasing sales of meat alternatives. 
Um, I mean, I suppose I do feel that although this article is focused on Tesco, it does have wider implications for the food industry as a whole. Um, so as products come under greater scrutiny from both um, shareholders, consumers, government policymakers. Um, so I think we're, we're all going to have to play our part really in promoting a healthier outcome. I, I was fascinated by this article, um, partly because I'd seen a stat earlier this week uh, from Cal one of the Kantar team on LinkedIn about calorie density of our shopping. Mm. I don't know if you spotted that as well, and there's a, basically a massive spike, and I, I know that's probably me buying all the biscuits, but there must be some <laughs> other folks buying biscuits as well, uh, because we want all that nice, particularly in, in winter, that nice calorie dense food and it made me think that the article whose role is it because you you know if you speak to a retailer and as you're speaking to retailers at the moment that they always say you know we want to sell what consumers want but then there's this external pressure that actually we need to be selling more nutrient food we need to be looking at the sustainability piece but then do you give a load of sort of square footage away to something that actually a consumer is still going to divert past and go to the biscuit aisle and it is the key in MPD here, do you think, to make some of the solutions beyond just a nicer fixture for fruit and veg, but it's more convenient fruit and veg and it's easier for a consumer to cook at home? What's the sweet spot, do you reckon? Yeah. Well, I think there are a number of, of things there. I, mean, I think the chocolate biscuits or the biscuits rather actually is, I mean, so I didn't, um, I'd actually missed the Cantar stat, but there was um, an article that came out on children's yogurt and it was highlighting the amount of sugar. And so you would have thought that a children's yogurt was healthy, but actually there's so much sugar in them. So I think there's that whole element on labeling um, being quite misleading. Um, and it was comparing the yogurts to chocolate biscuits. Um, so I know with the baby food category, for instance, um, that there are some pouches, some baby pouches out there that you would consider healthy, they've actually got 15 grams of sugar per 100 grams and they might have organic no added sugar but actually are they are they healthy that that they are quite calorie dense um, and that's the other thing um sort of the whole reformulation aspect so um cutting cutting calories um it, it doesn't mean it, it's any more nutritious it, it's not you know so so a calorie can be empty what I also find quite challenging in this debate, and the article, uh, Laurie, talks about this a little bit as well, is that that sort of definition of what do we mean by healthy, and as you say, it's sort of, mm. it's not just about calorie, um, it's, it's not just about sugar content even, or salt content, or fat content, um, but it's, it's about nutrient density as well, um, mm. and I, I think that is always such a difficult area for food manufacturers, but also, also retailers to, to navigate. I mean, we, we saw that with the, with the obesity strategy in the past, where if you have, you know, relatively blunt metrics, you suddenly start penalizing what would be considered wholesome, fresh foods, you know, things like nuts, things like olive mm -hmm. oil. Yes, and I think there's also then the complication of, well, not, it's not a complication, but, but which is the priority, there's the whole sustainability issue. Um, climate change, but then nutrition. So I think sometimes, um, I think, you know, obviously a move to plant-based is, is supposedly good for the environment. Um, and I think on the, the most part it, it is, but um, actually, is it healthy or is it healthy? You know, again, you, do you get all the nutrition from it? 
So is, prior, is nutrition the priority or is it sustainability? And uh, maybe that has to be a consumer choice, actually. As consumers become more aware, they will want it. And you know, if, if the um, retailer doesn't provide that healthy option, then the consumer will likely walk. Um, and it does, you know, it does. So I do think there's an, it, it covers all aspects. There's the educational side, um, policy making side, retailers need to do their bit, producers as well. We need to produce healthy food. You know, our MPD has to be healthy, nutritious and tasty and good for the environment. Um, and I think, you know, I mean, from my perspective, obviously, this all starts with the early years. Um, you know, so if you can bring your child up to eat healthily and then they have those healthy eating habits ingrained in them, then they're likely more likely to make the healthier choices. And I think there has really been a shift over recent years to, you know, really pushing healthy, nutritious food. Julie, what's your first pick this week? My first pick is from The Times, and it's an article titled Groceries in 10 Minutes, The Next Delivery Battleground. This is all about express grocery delivery, uh, which is just such a fascinating part of the online market at the moment. This article specifically talks about a Turkish company called Getia, which is really trying to revolutionize delivery. They are already very successful in Turkey, and now they're making a big play for the UK. This is London initially, as you'd expect. So Getir have now opened five dark stores um, and they plan to open another 20 in the capital over the coming few months. And they also have some big name backers and sizable investment behind it, as you might expect. And the wider context here is, of course, the pandemic and the boom in online shopping that we've talked about on this podcast so many times. Um, and of course, also these new partnerships between supermarkets and delivery operators, such as Uber Eats, such as Deliveroo, which have really changed expectations around delivery times quite dramatically. And as the article points out, pretty much all the big supermarkets have an express delivery option of some description now, Tesco actually being uh, one of the exceptions. Um, the article talks about the partnership between Deliveroo and Co-op, for example where grocery orders are delivered on average within 27 minutes, which is astonishing. But then a company like Getir now wants to drive this down even further with that promise of delivery within 10 minutes. And the way they're looking to achieve this sort of crazily fast delivery time is essentially by having a network of dark stores. So when a grocery order comes in, unlike with other operators, you don't need store staff to pick the order. You don't need the driver to go into the store to pick up the order. It's done much more efficiently via these mini dark stores. Now, the big question is always is, you know, when we talk about online as profitability, you clearly need quite a few of those mini dark stores in order to start servicing uh, larger uh, areas. But can you really make money with these services? Um, are consumers prepared to pay enough of a premium for these super fast delivery options? Or is it just going to become something they expect and it's going to eat even more into online profitability? Those are some questions that the article talks about, about um, working conditions for the drivers that are often powering these services, you know, very often employed on a sort of gig economy model. Um, also some road safety concerns, given the focus on fast delivery times with these services. And of course, there is that question of long-term consumer demand. Are these delivery options really going to be compelling 
once we can pop out to the local convenience store whenever we want and we don't feel like we might be restricted um, in going into some of these smaller stores. And, and Laurie, I was really interested in your take on this, given that right now delivery D2C is a big part of your business. How do you handle delivery? And have you seen any evidence from your customers that they are looking for more and more speed when it comes to delivery times? We, so it's interesting. So when we were, were setting up, um, you know, the question of how often do we deliver come, you know, came up and we, we landed on, well, let's start with once a week. And, you know, as um, volume increases and demand increases, we're probably going to have to increase it. But demand has increased, volume has increased, and we haven't had the, the we haven't been asked to really for, for speedier delivery. Um, we do get the occasional, you know, can I have it sooner? And we try and accommodate, or if they've missed the order cut off when I can still push it through, I will. Um, so yes, we do get a handful. Um, but ultimately, I've, I find that we haven't, we haven't had that, you know, that pushback for, you know, can you open up more delivery slots? I, I mean, our stance has really been, that it's not, you know, if we can consolidate it as a one weekly order, it's far more environmentally friendly. Um, and it, it saves and people can order in bigger batches and order once and, you know, fill their, their fridge. And it, it, it's just more, it's more efficient that way. Um, and I suppose it depends on perhaps how you shop. Um, you know, I think maybe perhaps as a mother, I, I don't know, I, I'm torn about this. I, I feel that, you know, these, these delivery apps are, they're skewed perhaps. I, I question who their customer is. I think that's what I struggle with. Who, who's a target customer? Um, you know, they're skewed perhaps more to urban areas. Um, they probably can't offer a, a large variety of, of at least fresh products because they've got lots of local, you know, depots and dark stores. Um, and I've actually had a look at their apps. Their apps are really good. They're really streamlined, convenient, easy to shop, but the product descriptions are minimal. So I think they perhaps cater more for the convenient shopper rather than the ethical shopper. And, you know, pricing is high. Uh, I think it's a 10 to 20% higher. Um, but they also intend to use advertising as a, um, a revenue channel. But, but actually, if I want convenience, I don't think I'd want to be bombarded by, by ads. Um, so on the other hand, I can see that if you're a parent and you've got, you know, a screaming baby, a toddler wanting their dinner, you've forgotten something. You really don't want to have to strap the baby in a pram and put the coat and shoes on the toddler and drag them out the house. So it does have its place, I feel. Um, I, I guess it's it's going to be a, a race for survival and to see, you know, how they innovate and how they manage to, to gain that market share. Um, yeah, I think it's going to be an, it's just, it, it, really exciting to watch it play out, actually. I totally agree. And I'm really intrigued as well about who the shopper is. And as you say, for, for those items that you maybe forget and, you know, and speed is of the essence, but actually will it become, particularly if you are in an urban area, part of your normal psyche that I don't need to worry about what I'm going to have for, I'm going to be Northern here, have for tea tonight, uh, because uh, what's, what doesn't matter is because I can order it on the app and it'll be here in 10 minutes and then I'll cook it. And back to the previous pick, you know, we're talking about health and invariably, you know, cooking times maybe for healthier options are a touch longer. And if you're thinking, if you want some inconvenience, you want it quick, is it that old model of, booze and chocolate and a ready meal or is it 
is it going to become more than that? Is, is, to your point, Laurie, is there going to be more of an ethical play in this further down the track? But it doesn't quite marry for me 10 minutes and that customer. Laura, what's your first pick for us? Uh, my first pick this week is from the BBC and it's Coca-Cola uh, Trials First Paper Bottle. And there's been a, b- a bit of a news about this uh, because there's been a, a few players, including Absolute and Carlsberg, talking about paper bottles over the last couple of weeks. So I was intrigued by this article. And by a bit of background, Coca-Cola have been ranked the world's worst uh, plastic polluter uh, by a charity last year, Break Free From Plastic. Um, and Coca-Cola have already got a zero waste policy in play and they want to be zero waste by 2030. So they have the goal to eliminate plastic and this paper bottle is part of their journey towards this. Interestingly, the article talks about this paper bottle being in trial for the last seven years. So this isn't something that they've just switched on overnight. It's been a huge amount of MPD for them. Um, And this product uh, does have some plastic within it. It has a plastic liner and a plastic top, um, but they are moving towards hopefully a fully... um, paper version in time but there's a huge issue around it it's really interesting I hadn't thought about it 100% of fibers not getting into the liquid and of course you can't put liquid right next to paper reminds me of my GCSE science remembered that uh, and that the article spells it out quite well um, the trial is going to be um, uh, in Hungary for a, a fruit a beverage from the coca-cola portfolio called Adez. Um, and the article talks about a single molding and how easy it is, obviously, if paper's in two parts and it could come apart. And they feel like they've tested it as, as well as they can before they actually put it now out into the market in Hungary. Um, and I really like the way the article talks about the rough and tumble of logistics. And I guess you just think about walking around a supermarket and pallets getting dropped on the floor and things getting stacked and, you know, and uh, shoppers knocking things off shelves. But they want to see actually how this performs in the real world. Uh, the article also goes on to say in the long term they're looking at a, a bio-based barrier for these um, uh, paper bottles to to uh, replace the plastic liners and they're going to be a, a plant-based co- uh, coating to stop the uh, paper liquid uh, coming into contact. There was another quote from the article, not only from Coca-Cola, but from the Packaging Europe magazine, which I love the sound of because I am a bit of a packaging geek, so I'm, uh, I'm going to be checking out their website later. And they call out the fact that it is a niche product um, and even though uh, packaging geeks like us are interested in it, it will take a long time to come on stream. And they also interestingly point out that plastic is embedded in terms of many countries' recycling policies. We are used to recycling plastic, so it's not always uh, to be seen as a bad thing. And they also point out the fact that bringing another um, piece of uh, packaging into play like more paper then pushes up the recycling requirements. And it made me think of us talking about cardboard uh, a couple of episodes ago that Amazon uh, uh, arguably buying so much cardboard at the moment is making it hard to to recycle and get it back into the supply chain uh, to feed the the D2C players. So exciting, but I think the bottom line is it's going to take a while. What are you seeing, Laurie, and are you getting, I guess, pressure from your customers about the packaging requirements and and plastic in particular because it's just so much in focus at the moment isn't it so we um it's it's definitely something i i'm i keep an eye on um because we do have plastic pots but they are recyclable everything we have is recyclable and i would love to to get rid of our plastic pots 
and um, perhaps replace them with compostable plastic or another material. Our difficulty is that we use um, high pressure processing, so it's um, we use pressure to retain uh, extend the, the shelf life more naturally, and so it retains the authentic texture and, and flavour. Um, and obviously, we can't put anything through; it'll it'll explode. <laughs> so, um, so we've got to be quite careful with this. Um, but we are. I mean, I am. I have explored this, and I I have been in touch with um, um, some universities. Actually, and I, I'm hoping at some point we'll be able to trial some some new material. I think one of the, the, the big things here that's exciting is that um, Coke have been working with a packaging company. I think I'm, if I'm correct, and maybe if I'm correct in this, but the, um, one of the biggest challenges is that, you know, you can have all this innovative material, but if you don't have the manufacturer who's going to help commercialize it, then that's a big challenge. Um, the other thing that, that struck me about this is um, that it's a hybrid. At first I read paper, you know, paper bottle, actually it's got plastic in. How do you recycle a hybrid? Um, so, you know, it's easy to recycle plastic and easy to recycle paper separately, but how are you going to separate it? I mean, it, it's a good step in the right direction, um, but um, we're, not, we're not quite there yet, I suppose. Laurie, what's your second pick for us? My second pick um, was an article from Food Navigator, and it's based on um, a recent city food lecture delivered by Mel Smith. Um, the CEO of Ocado, and um, she claims that the pandemic has been a catalyst for a growing move to online shopping, an area that previously had been slow to take root. Um, so pre-COVID, online sales accounted for 7% of the total market, and now they've almost doubled to 13%, and this is expected to continue to increase. And um, well, I mean, despite the initial struggles Ocado had in meeting the increased demand, uh, sales within Ocado have actually grown by 35%. And many customers apparently are saying they were unlikely to revert to their previous retail habits. Um, so I think they, they see an efficient and smart use of technology as a, a driver of their success. Um, so yeah, I find this article interesting on a, a number of levels. I think Cardo are perhaps the retailer that is closest to their customer and they have clearly identified a pain point with, with meal planning, for example. Um, they're suggesting that they can use customers' baskets to, to um, curate recipes and, and ways to use up leftovers. And they talk about smart appliances, which link to your, your it links your basket to your fridge so that your, your smart fridge can then prepare your shopping list and taking into account shelf life and, and consumption habits. And on, on the one hand, I love this idea. You know, I think it could encourage us to eat more healthily and have an educational aspect. Um, but on the other hand, I, I also worry that it will take away all creativity and spontaneity might it become an encroachment on our, our freedom of choice? And so, you know, if everything becomes about efficiency, where is the pleasure in life? <laughs> um, I mean, I guess on a more personal note, um, I've done, actually, I've actually done the opposite. So I used to shop online at least half the time, but with lockdown, my, my weekly shop is now the highlight of my week and it's an opportunity to connect with humanity. Um, I mean, of course, as, as life hopefully returns to normal and other activities come back, I, I'm sure I'm going to change my mind. <laughs> but I do feel that the, the role that a retailer plays in the community is important as a place of connection, you know, where people can engage with each other. They often have notice boards and um, charitable connections. I mean, I think recently there's been a there's been a call for retailers to be a place for women in domestic violence to seek help. 
And I mean, perhaps this is a, a you know where retailers can find more of a point of differentiation. Uh, so it's it's certainly an ambitious program, and I love how they are so data driven and use this to create value and to tailor the customer experience. So I think it's going to be fascinating to see how Ocado continues to innovate and how retail will will evolve in in the future. It's brilliant to hear and I, I love the fact you, it's a treat to go out to the supermarket because I'm probably in that same boat now whereas uh, we've previously spoken about on the show you know running the gauntlet and just getting in as quick as you can and, and escaping but now I guess we're, we're so used to the lockdown situation that it is almost a treat so much so I do see other people probably using it as a a bit of a day trip out, particularly when the you know, as a couple with kids with them, and it does drive me a bit nuts. I'm like, this is my quiet time, and <laughs> should be shopping alone and just relaxing. But uh, yeah, cool. Um, in terms of Mel, I was fortunate enough to watch the city food lecture, and I totally agree with what was covered in the article. That was just some interesting points, and it was fascinating to see behind the scenes of their logistics as well. Uh, and one thing that, that that was captured in the article, um there as well about the 28 days in advance and knowing predictively or even through ordering what your customers are going to be uh, ordering so you can reduce waste I thought that was really fascinating and I suppose you'll be picking this up as well Laurie about that whole D2C about knowing what your customers like you to have and the fact I know I feel like I always mention this every episode I'm sorry but we have a tend to have a meal repertoire of about eight meals so unless it's a special occasion no one's going to actually go totally left field here so you can start you know managing what what your shoppers are going to have and all that amazing data so yeah and, and you're right that whole smart tech piece I probably am the sort of person that does need to be told what I could do with those leftovers but I don't think I would like it <laughs> so, <laughs> you know I like the idea of spontaneity but yeah it would be really helpful if it would tell me what to do with that jar of pesto that's probably rotting in the back of the, the fridge what did you think Julia because I know you watched City Food Lecture as well I did yeah I'm I it for me it was the piece around using data to help consumers plan meals and and sort of make smarter choices about food I think this is fascinating and there's so so much potential there because I feel like um shopping for food yes for some of us it's 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 a pleasurable experience and it has that sort of uh, spontaneity to it but there are so many demands, logistical demands on shoppers these days. You know, even if you take the pandemic out of the equation, you know, we are bombarded with health messaging. You know, you're supposed to get a certain amount of protein. You're supposed to get your, your fiber day. You're supposed to get a certain amount of fiber. You're supposed to do this. You're supposed to do that. And if you are doing the shopping, if you're trying to plan a shopping list, a weekly shop for a family, and you are trying to do your best on the health front, you're trying to meet a certain budget. You're trying to cater to people's different dietary choices. If one child's gone vegan and another one has, you know, gluten intolerance and whatnot, it, this is a nightmare. And I think if you can come up with an interface, it's data driven that makes it easy for consumers to say, you know what, my budget this week is a hundred pounds. I need to feed this many people. I need to get this many meals out of this. And at the end of it, I want to have ticked all the various boxes. I want to make sure I've mainly bought free range products or British source products. And I want to make sure that all my family are meeting various sort of health goals that we're trying to set for them. And I need it to be optimized so I don't end up with loads of feed waste. Well, 
I think lots of shoppers would really welcome some data-driven help in that. So it sounds like this is something that uh, that Ocado are exploring seriously. I think it could become a really compelling point of difference. And I also think that if it's not the big supermarkets or the big retailers doing this, someone like Amazon will or someone like Google will. So it's probably a good idea for them to start figuring this out. So yeah, I was very excited about that. I think it's got a lot of potential. What's your second pick this week? So my second pick this week is from Fast Company, and it's an article titled, This cream cheese doesn't have any milk, just lots of fusarium strain flavor lapis, which I suspect I've just completely butchered, but uh, we'll, um, we'll put it in the show notes so you can have a look at it yourself. But this is about a really interesting new brand of dairy-free cream cheese alternative and meat-free patties, essentially, that's just launched in the U.S., now you might say, well, we get loads of dairy-free uh, alternatives and lots of meat alternatives. What's so exciting about this? Well, the reason this caught my eye is because the company that's launching this is Nature's Find, and they are really, really interesting. They specialize in using fermentation technology to turn fungi into protein, which can then be used in dairy alternative products, but also meat alternatives. They've been around for a while. They were founded in 2012 and have so far raised $185 million, which tells you something about the potential that investors are seeing in this market. And the kind of fermentation that they are using, sort of precision fermentation, is a really hot topic in the alternative protein world at the moment, because it's really efficient. It uses a fraction of the land, water, and energy, not just of meat and dairy, but also of other alternative proteins. So we're sort of starting to see that debate about, you know, it's not just meat versus meat alternative, dairy versus dairy alternative, but also starting to see a little bit more nuance in the debate around which alternative alternative proteins are potentially most advantageous. And the protein that you get from this precision fermentation process that they have developed is incredibly versatile which is why this company is launching a dairy alternative product and a meat alternative product at the same time. It's basically to make the point that this is very, very flexible as an ingredient and you can use it to create a really wide range of products. Um, Fermented fungi probably doesn't sound like it would have a lot of consumer appeal if you put it like this, but I think the branding's pretty good. I think the name's pretty good. Um, And of course, fermented foods, just as an overall category, are becoming more mainstream. I wonder if that creates an opportunity for slightly more positive associations than there would have been in the past. And in the UK, of course, we have a very well-developed market for mycoprotein through corn. So you'd imagine that consumer acceptance in a market like the UK might even be higher. So it'll be very interesting to see how Nature's Finds international ambitions play out and whether they're ultimately going to be looking to bring this to the UK as well. But yes, fermentation in the context of alternative proteins, really interesting and uh, really, really interesting to see this company, which has been working on its NPD for a very long time, now coming to market with its first commercial products. Laurie, what did you make of it? I think it's fascinating. I think it's, you know, a big positive that it's so adaptable, this this fungus. And and it's not, um, I find it's not actually, it's not a meat um, it's not dairy, it's not a plant either, it's its own kingdom, it's a fungus, um, and it's natural, it's a natural organism that hasn't been tweaked in a lab, such that, you know, the, you get the lab-grown meat, um, 
and you know it comes directly from nature and I think people are perhaps a little uneasy with about um, maybe eating technology such as the, the lab-grown meats but because this is natural I actually think that um, it, it's it's likely to take off I mean it's, it's a mushroom is a fungus as well I believe so um, I don't think it's actually a, as as far out as you know it it, it comes across in, in the beginning and it's I think for innovation it, it's great because it's um it's neutral um there's there's no natural flavor so it's great as a you know a building block it's a perfect base uh, it's also you know it seems to be really space efficient environmentally friendly so it seems like an all-round winner um I mean I guess I'm, I'll probably reserve my judgment my full judgment in, until I've tasted it but um, I, I I'm really I'd like to taste it. <laughs> Laura, what's your second pick for us? My second pick is from The Grocer and it's Weetabix sales surge following baked beans social media post. Um, I don't know if, if either of you saw this last week, but I was absolutely loving it. So this was uh, a tweet uh, by Weetabix and they've been going through a series of... Um, uh, of saying what you could match Weetabix with. So uh, prior to this tweet, um, there was a uh, talking about matching uh, Weetabix with Marmite and Alpro, but this one was focused on baked beans and it was, uh, their tweet said, why uh, should bread have all the fun when there's Weetabix serving up with uh, at uh, Heinz beans on Bix for breakfast with a twist? And there's a photo underneath with uh, a couple of dry Weetabix and uh, some baked beans on top. Um, well, as a result, uh, their sales have surged up uh, 15% in Sainsbury's alone, uh, said the brand, after the divisive post showing the cereals bars, cereal bars slathered in baked beans went viral. And when we say went viral, boy, did it. So the uh, tweet racked up over 1, million, sorry, 1 billion views, becoming the number one trending topic on Twitter. It does make me feel, you know, is this how sad our life is? And you've got nothing else going on and we've just found something really, really niche about food on Twitter, sparking headlines in national newspapers. Other big food and drink brands joined the fray, including Nando's asking, you okay, hun? And this was another piece that I really liked in this story that brands and other official Twitter accounts jumped on the back of this. Um, we had Tesco uh, saying illegal combination in the bagging area, JS saying beans have no authority, no authority at all, a nice little nod to Jackie Weaver, and even the NHS jumped in on their official account saying that tweet should come with a health warning. And part of this in the back of my mind, and I know we, we spoke about it last season, and I think it was around KFC and them having the autonomy and the ability to whoever's running that social media account to move at pace to say something authentic to say something punchy and not have the requirement to send it up the hierarchy to be signed off and that resulted in a, a lot of I guess social media banter and disarming of brands which I thought was really interesting to see. Uh, Weetabix uh, health of brand, sorry, head of brand Gareth Turner said the business certainly didn't imagine would get su such a big response on social media and the post was part of our wider campaign to encourage people to eat Weetabix in different ways uh, and then Heinz because obviously they probably didn't actually see this coming in such a big way said they certainly gained a lot of positive attention from the tweet and as a result even Sainsbury's merchandise Weetabix and Heinz together for Valentine's Day in one of their stores dubbing the duo a love story of the year. 
Laurie, what do you make of this and social media? Do you, What do you see working well for some of these food brands and some not? Do you see some that are a bit too stilted still and too corporate or are, do, are some of these major players and, and SMEs who do it really well becoming a bit more in tune, realising you can need to speak to your audience as a friend, really, rather than from a place of authority? Yes, I mean... I mean, I think this is a great example of, of, of you know, the British sense of humour. It really tickled me. And um, I think um, it's difficult in social media to, to find your voice and to really, you know, it, it sort of reach your customer. And I think that this was just a very clever campaign uh, that, that hit the nail on the head. And, um, you know, it captivated the nation and endeared them to the brand. Um, it's... I don't think social media needs to be authoritative. I think, you know, you can be maybe um, friendly. It, I, I guess it depends on your audience so much um, and what, what sort of they like. So for us, for example, we know that, that our customers want more content, educational content, and they don't want to be made to feel guilty and they want reassurance. And so we have that, that sort of approach more. Um, and it, it, it does just come naturally in a way. And, and I think it's more about finding your your natural voice as a brand perhaps um yeah I, I think that's such a such a key point isn't it because I was interested to see that I think in some of the the marketing press this incident obviously got a lot of headlines as well and I think someone talked about this being an example of branter as in brand banter which love that. made me throw up a little bit in my mouth you would hate um, it. I love that. <laughs> so, so I, I, you know, I think when these things happen um, reasonably spontaneously, or at least they come across as, as happening reasonably spontaneously, fine. If it becomes a thing where now poor social media managers are going to be tasked with, you know, creating branter moments, I think the public's appetite for this um, would disappear rather quickly. So yeah, I think it's it's. Um, it's obviously had a fantastic results here and, and it shows that if you get your social media audience right and Laura, as you say, you know, you've got a social media team that's empowered to act spontaneously and, and get this right in the moment, you can still make a massive impact. You know, what Little Moons did on, did on TikTok recently, I think, is another example of, you know, just hitting the right tone, understanding the audience, understanding the platform. And, you know, you're, you're acquiring um, far more customers and uh, far more eyeballs than you ever could through a paid campaign. But, yeah, that mention of Branta just made me um, a little bit nervous that, that we're going to start, see, start seeing brands really sort of forcing these kinds of uh, hilarious moments. I don't think that would be a good way forward. Laurie, thank you so much for joining us. It's been great to have you on the show. Thank you. <laughs> really enjoyed it. Great to have you. That's all we have for you this week. Thank you so much for listening. You can find links to the articles we discussed in the show notes at thepicklist.co.uk. If you enjoyed our show, please subscribe, give it a rating and leave a review. It makes a massive difference to our podcast and helps us reach more people in the feed industry who'd enjoy listening to The Picklist. Thanks again for listening. See you next time.